Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives, our podcast about the ideas which are shaping the EBRD regions and beyond. I'm Jonathan Charles, and today we're discussing the middle income trap with our guest, Alexander Plekhanov, Deputy Director of Research at the EBRD's Office of the Chief Economist. But what is the middle income trap? Is it a myth or, in fact, a reality afflicting many countries? If it does exist, how can those not in it avoid falling inside? And those that are stuck there, how can they escape and attain high income status? Well, here's one potential definition of that middle income trap. The middle income trap is a state of affairs whereby a developing economy becomes stuck at a certain level of income and cannot join the ranks of advanced high income economies. Put simply, it seems to be easier for a long income economy to become middle income than it is for a middle income one to become a high income economy. So Alex, what do you think about that definition? Is it an accurate one? Do you recognise that? So how do we divide countries into income groups? Um, it is a fairly accurate definition, but there are actually two questions here. Um, what is middle income trap and, and how we define middle income? Um, I think defining middle income in terms of specific groups is very popular, uh, but actually not extremely helpful. You can think about it in very simple terms. There are the poorest economies in sub-Saharan Africa, maybe in South um, Asia, with the income per capita measured in hundreds of US dollars. And then there are advanced economies like the United States with income per capita, say, fifty-five to $60,000. And in a way, everything in between is uh, middle income and has middle income challenges. There are various classifications out there. Uh, for example, the World Bank may classify uh, Latvia as an advanced economy. But if you go to Riga and ask people whether they think they live in an advanced economy, uh, maybe not very many people will agree. Or sometimes it's done by membership of OECD. Romania is a member, Turkey is a member, Chile is a member, you can go to those countries and ask them if they think they have completed their transition to advanced economy status to high income. Um, and again, not very many people would agree. So in this report, we're very broadly speaking, say that it's about, um, say, one third to two thirds of US income per capita, just to visualize the middle of that road from the very poor economy to um, to the United States. But it, in fact, um, can be uh, anything. We also come to talk about this particular um, range from an entirely empirical exercise. We take uh, more or less 20 years of growth, starting from after the 1998 crisis, and we look at how economies performed over the long term. And we look not only at um, headline growth, but at another very important dimension, at productivity. And it's indeed what we find that at these middle income levels, productivity growth over the long term has been slower than both in poor economies, which is normal, but also than in rich economies. So, so just to be absolutely clear then, when we're talking about all of this then what we're really saying is countries do all right at the beginning, they start growing, they ha probably have reasonable productivity at the beginning, is, is that right? And then they sort of get stuck. And as a result, as the productivity gets stuck, then growth gets stuck, and they don't really advance in the way they ought to be. Yes, I think that's a very fair summary of um, what's happening, really. Now, it seems that going from middle to high income status really requires qualities different from those needed at, the, at an earlier stage of development then. But, so what, are, what is the real challenge or what are the real challenges that emerging economies face as they attempt to, in effect, change their development model, I suppose, in order to get out of the middle income trap? 
Well, we economists uh, like putting a lot of jargon uh, when talking about these challenges, but you could think about it in very simple terms. Um, take um, an economy at the start of that uh, transition, whether it would be Bangladesh or some time back, um, Philippines, uh, basically going from um, low income to middle income involves, um, say, taking your industry like textiles and uh, producing textiles more efficiently and slightly better, or taking uh, smartphones and assembling them and assembling them ever more efficiently. What um, does an advanced economy do? Well, actually, advanced economy more or less designs those smartphones and um, arranges the global distribution chains, sets up this production in low-income countries. And that's the essence of the transition from middle-income to high-income, learning to design smartphones. Or, if you're in textiles, uh, you can design textiles and then have them manufactured in Bangladesh. That's what Italy would do. Different economies specialize in different things, but they're at fundamentally different parts of that um, transition. Now, it is actually not at all trivial to transition from assembling smartphones ever more efficiently in ever larger factories to actually designing smartphones or at being ever more efficient at producing textiles, coloring them, etc., to actually becoming a Prada and, and designing Prada. And, and this is the difficulty of middle income transition. It, it's not about just doing more of the same. Uh, it's about doing different things. So from what you're saying, you clearly don't believe those economists, those critics actually of economists who say the middle uh, income trap is just a myth, it doesn't exist. Middle income trap, I think, is very real, but there is no uh, trap that is there at a particular level of income. I think that we economists would try to estimate where it actually is at $3,000 per capita, $9,000, $15,000, $25,000. And it very much depends on your circumstances. It depends on global environment. It depends on, um, on whether you're in textiles or in assembling smartphones or in doing something else. Yeah, I don't think you can find that level of income, but it is a very useful concept to think about the challenge of that transformation. Now, you've done this report, uh, the latest transition report uh, that's come from the Office of the Chief Economist of, uh, of the EBRD. Which economies then do you think and do you identify as, as requiring a new growth model to, to escape the middle income trap? It's actually most of the economies in the region where we work, most of them will fall into these uh, fairly large window of where middle income trap is. And more fundamentally, in our region, uh, we look at how our economies perform um, relative to other economies. We take economies with similar income per capita, similar populations, uh, and compare them like for like every year. Every year we choose different comparators. And what we see if before the 2008-2009 crisis, emerging Europe, um, Central Asia, North Africa, uh, actually outperformed comparable economies fairly strongly. Since 2008-2009 crisis, it has consistently underperformed. And I think it, it um, epitomizes the additional challenge of um, middle-income transition in, uh, in this region. You're listening to Pocket Economics, the EBRD podcast on how economic ideas help to change people's lives. I'm Jonathan Charles. Today we're discussing the middle-income trap with our guest Alexander Plakhanov. And Alex, it's not just countries in the EBRD sphere of influence. I mean, there are some very big economies 
that face similar problems. I mean, China, I know a couple of years ago, China's finance minister said his country had a 50% chance of falling into the trap in the next five to 10 years. So, so it's, it's a big problem affecting many, many areas, isn't it? Yes, China is actually a very interesting case. We looked at China in detail and we had some, there are some good news about um, China and middle income trap. And the Chinese maybe, would be very happy to hear that. <laughs> uh, uh, and maybe, yes, some uh, not so good news, not, not, not sure about that one. Um, basically, despite quite a bit of deceleration in growth since the middle 2000s, from 14%, say, to 6.5-7% growth. If we do the same exercise and see how China compares to other economies in terms of its growth every year, actually China has been outperforming other economies um, by four percentage points a year for now almost 20, 25 years since the early 1990s. So that has been actually very consistent. You can expect China to slow down, but in terms of relative performance, they've done very well. They've done very well for around 40 years now, and this is one of the most spectacular growth outperformance episodes together with um, Korea and um, a few other countries, mostly in Asia. The probably not so good news is that um, China started with very low income per capita. It is now probably at around $7,000 at market exchange rate, maybe a bit more. Uh, it will be more at purchasing power parity, uh, but it is fundamentally in that middle income uh, zone where it has become uh, very good at um, assembling smartphones and uh, it is becoming much better at um, designing them as well. But uh, there is a lot to be done on that road still. Has the past decade, the financial crisis and the recovery from the financial crisis, how has that then played into this whole question of the middle income trap? And um, has it made it harder for countries to escape the middle income trap? I think ultimately the crisis is not really the root cause of the middle income mm. trap, but sometimes it is a trigger uh, of a change in economy's performance. It is something that that just flips that period of very confident performance into a, a more troublesome period. And certainly for the region where we operate um, in, uh, we, we BRD in emerging Europe um, and Central Asia, that has been very much the case. And in particular, uh, it's the fact that uh, before the 2008-9 crisis, a lot of investment that was very much necessary for um, the development uh, came financed from abroad with very large current account deficits uh, and that model just disappeared overnight and that I think what made the legacy of the crisis in emerging Europe a lot um, uh, longer lasting than in many other regions. And you know we've identified the cause, we've been speaking about it now for a few minutes, but what do these countries do? What should they do? if they want to escape the middle income trap? It is a very good question. Actually, there is no silver bullet. What we did in the report is we looked at uh, periods of exceptional performance like China's or um, Korea's or uh, a number of countries in emerging Europe before the 2008-09 um, crisis and tried to explain them with various um, variables as we economists always do. And actually the recipes are all very familiar. Um, it is um, about investment. You have to invest a lot, but it's also about investment that is financed by domestic savings. It is about uh, building institutions. It is about um, sound infrastructure, and we discuss it um, a lot uh, in our report. I think finance is um, important, but probably one has to have a more nuanced view. 
that can be actually counterproductive. Other forms of finance, equity finance, specialized finance is very important and so on. So there is this broad view of, of uh, familiar ingredients. I think a slightly more refined view can be found in what is called the um, Neo-Schumpeterian or Schumpeterian framework. It is about what um, economic development policies should target. And at first, when you learn to assemble iPhones more efficiently, it's a lot about investment. It's a lot about basic education and, and ability to learn. It is um, uh, about basic competition policy and so on. If you move further up, it becomes a lot more about innovation. It becomes a lot more about property rights, about um, nitty-gritty details of economic institutions, about nitty-gritty details about uh, of competition policy, about specialized skills, um, at tertiary education, uh, PhD level, etc really specialized engineers who would drive this innovation. Uh, it is about those more specialized areas of finance that actually uh, support this um, innovation ecosystem. So the, the focus of the policies changes um, gradually. And um, I think it is just very important at some point to realize that uh, yeah, if, if certain policies have worked for 30 years, it doesn't actually mean that they need to work for the next 20 years. It is important to pause a bit and to um, reconsider one's comparative advantages. And just very briefly, I mean, it sounds from some of those solutions as though the private sector has quite a role to play, because certainly good private sector investment can boost productivity, for example, and could, it, could it also boost innovation. Absolutely. I think the more complicated uh, the ecosystem becomes, uh, the greater the role of the private sector. It is probably much easier for the national champions that can sometimes be successfully sponsored by the public sector uh, to go through this investment scaling up production phase. It is much more difficult to go with the um, public sector model through innovation, through commercialization of innovations, through that um, additional, uh, uh, th through that next stage. It is actually where private sector has a much greater role to play and where also the uh, coexistence and collaboration between public and private sectors become very important. Alex Plakanov, thank you very much. And if you're interested in learning more about this subject, you can find out more on ebrd.com. Well, there you'll find the transition report as well with all the details. Meanwhile, share your thoughts with us at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook. Visit iTunes, SoundCloud and ebrd.com slash podcast, and you can download previous episodes. Uh, we welcome suggestions, by the way, as to topics you'd like us to talk about. Let us know. Until next time, goodbye.